one of the things I always tell students is if, if, if you enjoy human drama, if you enjoy crazy stories with wild twists and things that are better than you would see in a movie, then, then be a prosecutor. Today on the Pod Lab, we're digging into bringing a mafia story to life. Welcome to the Pod Lab, a podcast movement original series. I'm Doug Frazier, producer and host of the NPR podcast, What We Do. Today is a Let's Build a Scene episode where I'll break down a scene from a narrative podcast I produced. And today's scene is a wild one centered around Ellie Honig. He is a former federal and state prosecutor. But I tried mobsters, made guys, captains. Bosses, murder, Rico, primarily Genovese and Gambino family, which is two of the five families. And the scene is just, well, <laughs> you'll see. But before we jump into that, let's talk about the structure of the episode as a whole. This was the longest What We Do episode I've produced so far. The um, total runtime was about 30 minutes. And how these episodes work is I interview someone for about a half an hour, and then I create a narrative by taking bits of our interview and mixing them with a voiceover and sound design. And then the final product is usually between 10 to 15 minutes. He just had so many incredible stories to tell. I was trying to get every bit of information I could while I had him on the call, which this was before Zoom became so popular um, and I was using Skype. During the interview, we ventured into a bunch of topics, and I was feeling things out, trying to find an angle for the episode while the interview was going on, uh, so I could steer the conversation accordingly. So Ellie started talking about his three most movie-worthy cases, and of course, that sounded like gold to my ears. And those were the actual words he used. He asked if I wanted the most movie-worthy cases, and obviously, the answer to that is yes. So I used that for the basis of the episodes, these three very different stories, and I created three distinct chapters that together painted a picture of the wild, the funny, and also the fact that justice isn't always black and white, especially when it comes to these criminal cases. I wanted to create intrigue for the stories by giving each one a title, so something to tease what was to come. To get a taste for this, here's an example of how I transitioned into the first story. Case number one. We came, we saw, we buried him in the woods. And part of that first story is what we're breaking down today. So come along and let's build a scene. Since this comes in about a third of the way into the episode, um, let me give you some context for this particular scene. So. A maid guy named Anthony Arellata shows up in Ellie's office. Anthony's come in to flip, or like they say, he's now a rat. So he tells Ellie that they got all the info correct, and by they I mean the investigators, got all the information correct on a murder case that they'd been working on. So that was good news for Ellie. And then something bizarre happens. Anthony says, I can tell you where Gary Westerman is. Now, I don't know who the hell Gary Westerman is, but the agents who are Massachusetts FBI agents, their eyes light up. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so hold on a second. Let's pause this. I love that sound. That is called a brom. It's a great sound effect that's often laid over with other effects 
to create tension or suspense or intrigue. And you've heard this variation, I promise you, on just about every movie trailer ever. Here, listen to a few and uh, you'll see what I mean. Okay, so back to the scene. Anthony said, I can tell you where Gary Westerman is. Here's Ellie. Now, I don't know who the hell Gary Westerman is, but the agents who are Massachusetts FBI agents, their eyes light up. As it turns out, Gary Westerman had been missing for seven years. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. And Arolato was like, yeah, we killed him too. We buried him in the woods. I, I can show you where if you want to. Do you want me to show you where? <laughs> we were like, yes, we do. At this point, there's a, a couple seconds of no voices to let that tail end of the bram float there and build a little anticipation. And then Ellie gets into the story. You'll hear some subtle and not so subtle sound effects during this scene. Westerman was a bad guy. He was hanging out with these guys. And he also was co he was really cooperating with the cops. And so what they did is they lured him into the woods. Um, they told him they were going to rob a drug dealer. And they were going to go to the drug dealer's house like through a back way that you have to cut through the woods to get to this guy's house. So Westerman was wearing like a ski mask and he had a taser on him and he had gloves and everything. And they all were, but they knew what the plan was. They had already actually dug a hole for Westerman. And Erlotta told us, he goes, we, we all then just like we were in the middle of the woods and me and the two Greek guys that I mentioned before, the Gius brothers, we just turned our guns on him and started shooting him. And we were using 22s. He goes, but the weird thing was he didn't die. He said like, Bullets seemed like they were bouncing off his head, and we were like, what the hell? How wild is that? This guy gets shot a bunch of times and doesn't die. It feels like something, like Ellie said, straight out of a movie. I wanted to use the sound effects to reflect this feeling of helplessness the murderers must have felt in that moment. So I used a couple of effects in Adobe Audition to achieve this. I gave the gunshots a sound effect that's called a medium shot, and this just gives a bit of distance to the sound. And then I applied a light reverb and lowered the volume of the clips about 50%. This gives those gunshots that distant and muffled sound, so it really does feel like the bullets themselves don't have the power that they normally would have, which plays again into that helplessness. So I'll let Ellie take it from here. And so I took a shovel and another guy took a shovel, the two shovels we used to dig the hole, and we cracked him over the head and cracked his skull and killed him. And then we pushed him in the hole and he flopped in head first and we buried him. And we were like, okay, holy shit. You can take a guy out of jail. You can get a judge's order to take a guy out of jail for a day. So the FBI agents, I didn't physically go, but the FBI agents got an order. They took him, they, they got him in a van. They drove him up to the woods of Agawam, Massachusetts. And Anthony like walked him through the woods and was like uh, looking at different trees and stuff. And he was like, oh, I think it was right around here. Let's jump back there for a second to the music choice. Um, the overall tone of the episode is is lighthearted, right? It's not a hard-hitting journalistic piece. It's more of a, a popcorn or, or bubblegum story. So at this moment when the music comes in, had I used a darker song, the feeling would have been entirely different. So the story itself or the story that I'm trying to tell would be different as well. I wanted a tongue-in-cheek almost feeling to this little track. 
and it's also there to help transition into this next part. So FBI starts searching the area. Sure enough, there's 22 discarded shell casings and 22s all over the place. Seven years later, they're still there, still intact, and they do the dig, and um, they dig one inch at a time. That's the way the FBI does a dig. They get a backhoe, and they dig off one layer, one inch of dirt at a time, and then they filter it like through a gigantic, like one of those sand, um, you know, those like sieves kind of things, but a gigantic sieve because there's evidence. And so I still remember getting emails throughout that day from the FBI team and they were like, okay, first inch removed, nothing. Second inch removed, nothing. Third inch removed, nothing. Fourth inch removed, we found what appear to be two sneakers. Fifth inch removed, yup, it's two Nikes. Six inch, yep, two leg, but two ankle bones, yep, two, you know, shin bones and all that. I was like, okay, I think you got him. Basically, just like Anthony said, they had pushed him in head first and then buried him. So he was head down, feet up. Seven years later, they dug up Gary Westerman's body. His Nikes were still intact. We used to joke like Nike should have done like an ad, like how well. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, still had the taser, still had the, the, the ski mask on him. When the forensic examiner looked at the body, she confirmed the dent marks in his skull, which appeared to be from bullets. There was also a crack from blunt force trauma, like from a hammer or a shovel. Everything was exactly as Anthony told them. Here's a question I wrestle with here. How many times should I use that email sound effect? Should I do it every time that he mentions that he got a new message? Or just once to help make that moment feel more real and, and then just let it play out? Because if I use it every time, it might turn from a part of the story to a distraction. So that was a big concern for me. But let's just play around here for a second and let's hear it with the email sound at every mention and see what it sounds like. I still remember getting emails throughout that day from the FBI team and they were like, okay, first inch removed, nothing. Second inch removed, nothing. Third inch removed, nothing. Fourth inch removed, we found what appeared to be two sneakers. Fifth inch removed, yup, it's two Nikes. Six inch, yep, two leg, but two ankle bones, yep. <laughs> Actually, now that I've heard it after all these months since I produced the episode, I think this newer version may work better at bringing to life um, his previous line about receiving emails throughout the day, right? So it feels like an onslaught, and those extra sound effects help that sort of play out. It's funny how that works. Um, may maybe you've had this feeling as well, where you look back at an episode from months or even years ago and find better ways of doing things. I guess that's just part of creating. I think I'm playing chess. I see a king. I met his neck. I'm three steps ahead of every move. Now that's a check. Yes. Now it's time to hear a question from the Podcast Movement Facebook group. Hi, I'm Christoph Zajac Denick. My podcast is called I'm Kind of a Big Deal. It's an interview show, and I talk to people affected with dwarfism. We talk about the successes, the struggles, the funny, and the real day-to-day -day experiences of little people. I'd like to know, what's the best way to prepare for an interview? Thank you for that great question, Christoph. To help answer it, let's have a chat with Natalia Petrozella. She's a historian, as well as host and producer of Welcome to Your Fantasy, a podcast that dives into the history of Chippendales. Yes, that Chippendales. And a fair warning, if you're going to listen to that show at work, put headphones in because it gets a bit steamy. Natalia also co-hosts Past Present, where she and her co-hosts bring historical insights to political and cultural debates. So when it comes time to preparing for interviews, 
Natalia's game is strong. And as a historian, it will come as no surprise to hear that she believes research is crucial. The way I think of any interview is that I am so lucky if I've set up time that someone is taking to spend with me to talk about their life or their job or whatever the topic is. And so what I really try to do is a ton of research beforehand to make sure that I understand who this person is. I'm not going to waste time on questions that I could have figured out earlier on and that I'm not going to miss a chance to ask questions that I might not have even come up with if I had hadn't done that research beforehand. So that's the number one thing. You know, read, read as much as you can, do everything you can to make those moments valuable. Are there any particular sources that you find yourself going back to again and again in your research? Um, yeah, well, it really depends who I'm talking to. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky to have an academic affiliation. So I have access to all these historical newspapers. But even if you don't have that, I mean, newspapers.com, this is not a sponsored ad, but newspapers.com is not very expensive to just get a single um, subscription. And it has so many local newspapers going back even to the 19th century. Not that you're going to be interviewing somebody who was alive in the 19th century. But I find that that historical press is really, really valuable in not just reading like a Wikipedia page or a bio page, but seeing how these people were perceived at the time or acted or acting at the time. And so for me, that's always a place that I go to newspapers.com or if you have access, ProQuest Historical, those are just really, really valuable. Ooh, one more on that. You know, no, not that many people know this, but totally for free. Google Books has catalogued Life Magazine, some of Time Magazine for the stuff I do, Yoga Journal. Like there are a lot of periodicals there, which are there in full color and full print and are freely available. So um, yeah, Historical Press is the, a really a good place to go if you're doing that. If the person you're about to interview has never been in a newspaper and is not in any books, where would you go to find information? Yeah, well, it, again, it really depends. Like, um, for example, uh, for Welcome to Your Fantasy, I interviewed a lot of Chippendales dancers. Sure, some of them were famous and were written about, but um, most of them were not. And so for that, it doesn't let, let you off the hook for doing research. But for example, I'm thinking of one dancer, Scott Marlowe, who was very important to the story we were telling, but he wasn't a name that people were writing about. But it was important for me to make the most of that interview to really understand the world that he was part of. So um, the little that I knew about him, he danced for Chippendales for these particular years in New York City. He was from New York. I tried to understand what the neighborhood was like at that time where he was working, what it might have been um, to get a job at that in, in that period. Like I went to still the same kind of stuff, press, also even reading like history books about that period, like a book about, you know, um, nightlife culture in New York City to help me, who never lived through that moment, have smart questions to ask him, even though he's not a famous person. That does it for this week at the Pod Lab. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you'd like to be featured in a future episode, submit your question at the Podcast Movement Facebook page. Until next time, keep experimenting. The Pod Lab is a Podcast Movement original series produced and hosted by me, Doug Frazier. 